you have things that happen in your life that are out of your control. And there were plenty of things for me that were out of control in my life when I was growing up as a kid. And there were two ways to deal with those things. You could crawl into a corner and let those situations that were not good control you, or you could go and take control of the situation and to your best of your ability, fix it. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Does it get weird at some point, like being the guy that's like kind of grandpa sitting in his rocking chair talking about the days when you're still like in the midst of the days? I bet you in 10 years, people are going to be asking you and you're still going to be weird if you're not at Snowflake. I imagine it's exponentially more weird still being like, wait, I'm in it. Like I'm still battling right now. and, And dude, the other weird thing to ask myself is how am I not defining myself by this job? How am I not defining my human being? Because everyone knows me now. No one gave a shit about me before Snowflake. Now everyone wants to fucking talk to me. What's the definition of Chris Degnan? Like, that's a fucking weird question. How often do you feel like you get caught up in Snowflake Chris versus Chris coming home to his two girls and wife? I have an issue with friends and it's an issue. It's an issue. What's the issue? It's I went from like you being friends with me because you're my friend to now you're this rich guy who's tech famous and it's hard. It's hard to adjust to. How much of that do you think is in your head? Some of it is, but there's, there's been issues. And how much of it do you think gets to your head? I don't want it to get to my head. It's an insecurity, but like, one of the guys I love hanging out with the most is, is my buddy who's a union electrician because he doesn't know what the f*** I do. We just go play golf together. And his daughter's going to Penn State and I upgraded them to first class and they had never flown first class and I upgraded them to first class. To me, that is so cool. And he's just my fucking golf buddy. Do you get more worried about how others see you or how you see you? Like, what wraps you more around the axle? I just think that people think I have it more together than I actually do. I think I'm a mental mess. Like, do you think it's weird that everyone looks up to you, but when you talk to yourself, yeah. you, like, hate yourself? Yeah. <laughs> you like, it doesn't it make it worse in some way where everyone, yes. especially in your team, but now, like, other CROs, other founders are all looking up to you, but when you go home and brush your teeth at night, you're like, I didn't do enough. I'm fat. I I, I drank too much. I'm like, yes, I'm ugly. Doesn't that make uh, it worse? It's awful. Yeah, it's awful. Does that get better or worse for you? Has that got like, in the last 10 years, has that been the same thing? I'm super insecure. Um, Yeah. I did one with this guy and he's like, Jubin, if I was a fucking dairy farmer, I'd be anxious about the milk that I'd get from my cows. Yeah. I bagged groceries. I mowed lawns. Yes, I'm anxious about anything I do. You grew up in like a tough guy culture, both maybe growing up personally, but definitely professionally. Yeah. Like in your heyday. Yeah. And by the way, like your boss is the toughest guy in the world. You know, like, do you feel like you, I don't know, I feel like you figured out a way to like be able to be pretty honest about this in a way that I don't think many have. Do you agree with that? Well, I'm always honest with myself about the situations that I'm in. You have things that happen in your life that are out of your control. And there were plenty of things for me that were out of control in my life when I was growing up as a kid. And there were two ways to deal with those things. 
you could crawl into a corner and let those situations that were not good control you, or you could go and take control of the situation and to your best of your ability, fix it. And I think I'm also on the flip side, super realistic of like the success I've had at Snowflake, no matter how good of a salesperson you or I are, if we sell a shit ass product, we are not going to be good. So I happen to be selling and representing an amazing product and the feedback I have for myself and anyone else that works for me is you're never too big to do any, any job. You should be able to go on a sales call. You should be able to learn from others. Humility matters. If you let money and success get to your head, you're f***ed. You shouldn't be doing this job. But like, what's weird is like, dude, from the outside looking in, I tell all my friends, if and when I ever make it, I want to have the relative perspective that you have to all this that you do. But what's weird is when I talk to you, you're still freaking out that you don't have enough perspective on this all. Because we're f***ed up in the heads. Like, that's the issue. I feel like you've become a big brother to me in the last couple of years. I re-listened to our podcast the first time. Which, by the way, I do owe you a thank you for because at the time it was CROs and you were the cream of the crop. And you wrote, like, the nicest note on LinkedIn. And I remember exactly where I was. I remember, like, what? It was, like, a life event for me. I borrowed your credibility. And it meant a lot. So I owe you a thank you. You said in the podcast that when you're 13, like, your life changed. Can you share? Yeah. I mean, so I grew up at, in outside of Boston in a very affluent suburb of Boston. And life was amazing. We had front row seats at the Boston Celtics games. We'd go down to the Cape Cod every summer. I'd spend the summer on the beach. That was great. And then... I went to camp one summer, about 13 years old. I went for a month. I was home, so I came home. And my father had gone away to rehab for alcoholism. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, this sucks. Like, by the way, I had no idea that he was an alcoholic. Like, you wouldn't, he'd have beers, but I, I, like, I, I wouldn't know that he was drunk all the time. And so I'm like, that's weird. My suspicions go up. Really what was happening is my father was having multiple affairs. He was lying to his clients as a stockbroker, which then ended up sending him to prison. The IRS, literally a woman at the IRS handing me a, a note that they were foreclosing on our house, like me in the driveway, I get a note. And so going through that process and like the insecurities I have about people taking stuff from me is because... Literally all that was taken from me. And so I went from like, oh my God, like life's amazing when it really wasn't. My father was full of shit. He was a, a liar. So I know when I see a liar, and, th and this has been a skill set that I've learned. When people are lying, I know when they're lying. And that's a skill set that has helped me. I would say my superpower is being able to read people. And I'd say that was probably the biggest thing. So. You know, I would go visit my, my father in a maximum security prison. Come on. Oh, yeah. Maximum security prison. At like 14? No. So the legal process takes a little bit, but that's in high when, school. In high school. Yep. In high school. And then he went back to, to prison. He got on probation, violated his probation, went back, brought my, my little brother, who's four years younger than me, with me. And it's definitely a a crazy flip of the switch of like, you're super wealthy and all this you think you are and then you're not did you tell people it was in the news come on it was in the news like <laughs> yeah yeah so people fucking knew you know what's funny is like my mom calls me i mean i clearly remember this i was in high school probably freshman year and i get a call from my mom i have to come down to the guidance counselors because we don't have cell phones back then i have to go down to the guidance counselor and pick up the phone. Hey mom, your father's been indicted. And 
I'm like, okay, my mom's crying. And I'm like, mom, it's going to be okay. Now in hindsight, it should have been someone else saying, Hey, mm-hmm. Chris, it's going to be okay. But then I just was like, you know what, dude, I, I got to pick up the pieces. And you know, my close friends were like, you know, Hey dude, I'm sorry. And it was like a friend that wasn't really close to me, but a, like a guy, an acquaintance that said to me, Hey dude, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear, you know, hear about your dad. And it was just that I was in the bathroom. It was like one of those moments when I was like in the bathroom, he said, I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. I had to hold back tears. And I'm like, it's kind of weird how that works. Like the closest people to me, they were like, whatever. And I'm like, thank you. And I was unemotional about it. But then some random person was like, Hey, and I'm like, almost cried right in front of them. And I had to like go and hide and pull my shit together. So, and by the way, there's many a stories since, you know, over my lifetime that they actually still go on today with him, to be honest with you. It's definitely, it made me understand human beings better. Yeah. And pay attention to that stuff. I haven't gone through anything near that, but I've had my own dad things. Actually, I haven't seen my dad in seven years. Part of me is like, you know, I had to be the dad earlier than I wanted to be. And I always resented that. And it's created this like, like monster, honestly, like inside of me. But then over time, I was like, no, you want to be that monster. There is a good that comes with this thing that used to be insecurity. And like we were just talking about, it still shows up in really insecure, bad ways because I feel like, you know, the kid that didn't have gas money because his dad ran out of it and so we're stuck on the side of the 280. Like that kid shows up in ways that I, more often than I'd like to admit, but even more than that is the kid that's like, I'll never be that. And I'm like, God, I can't fucking teach that. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't coach that. And I'm just curious of your reaction. Like, I look back and I'm really actually weirdly grateful. And I'm not just saying this because I'm supposed to be like, oh, what a bad experience. Like, I actually feel my kids can't have this dog in them. Maybe they should have it. Maybe they shouldn't, but they're not going to get this. You and I think the same way. It's not dissimilar to how I feel, but completely different analogy and something you'll see as you get married and have kids and and all this other stuff is I have two daughters and they're now in high school and, but I grew up like wanting them to be in athletics. And so we would do club sports and get them to do these club sports. And there are psycho parents in the club sports world, like psycho, where they're ruining the teams. And I mean, it, I can go through the list of issues that parents have living vicariously through their children. But I think the thing that like you, you see in this process is that there are some kids that are doing it because their parents are forcing them to do it. And there are some kids that are doing it because they love it. And the love it, you look at a division one athlete, they could have the best parents in the world. They have the best upbringing in the planet, but they're out there practicing every single day because they have passion for the the sport. Kobe Bryant, I don't know what trauma he had growing up, but he had this insane drive. Michael Jordan, insane drive. His parents were married. You know, like there was probably trauma both of those guys had like everybody does, but man, there's something in them that drives them. So while your kid, you don't want to expose your children to the trauma that you had. And I don't want my kids to be exposed to the trauma that that they've gone through, that I've gone through, but there is something in you that makes you get up every day and go do whatever you're doing. Just like today, there's something in me. There are plenty of people that I've worked with at Snowflake, who've had less shares than me that have made less money that are like, I'm done. I don't need to work anymore. And I still do this because I love it. So I think you just kind of have to. Do you think about that with your daughters? Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Do you talk to your daughters about All this? All the time. They know about me bagging groceries at Star Market when I was 13 years old and riding my bike in the rain and all this other shit. Yeah. Hell yeah. And it drives them crazy. And they're like, yeah, Dad, we know. I'm like, well, you're going to have to go take care of yourself someday. Go figure it out. When my oldest, she was good at basketball, but she hated it. Hated it. And I was like, you got to play basketball. She's like, no, Dad. Not doing that. I'm like, fine, get a job. Go do something. But you can't come home every day and do this. And she's a way better student than I ever was. She's uh, involved in the student government. She volunteers. She's like a wonderful kid. And it's like, you do your best. And But yeah, I'm paranoid for my kids. When you were growing up, what was conversation like for you at the dinner table? So it was your brother, your mother, your father. He was around then. What was conversation like? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, you know, my brother's four years younger. Um, and, yeah, there's different phases of... Let's call it like pre-15 years old. Yeah, again, like there, <laughs> there were times when things were screwy. I would say, you know, look, at the end of the day, getting up in the morning is probably a better example of like... Look, we'd get up in the morning and have breakfast together, and I, I, I made my brother scared of eating eggs because I said there was baby chickens inside the the yolks, and we talked about. I mean, I loved basketball. I mean, so we would talk about basketball nonstop. I Larry Bird was my favorite human in the planet, and you're too young to know this, but the, the Celtics drafted <clears throat> Len Bias from Maryland, and he died from the night of the draft from doing cocaine and I cried. Um, what? He was the number two or three pick in the draft. He was supposed to be the next Michael Jordan. Um, under the rug. Yeah. But we would talk about the Celtics. We'd talk about the Patriots. We'd talk about the Red Sox, very much a sports family growing up. And, you know, that was, that was it. So that was our life. And then it wasn't. Going back to the earlier conversation of you getting worried about CRO of Snowflake Chris getting to your head and others, do you ever think about like if you didn't have this job, if you retired tomorrow, if everything was stripped away, then you'd be Chris in the driveway accepting that notice again? Like, do you ever think that like yes. that is the thing that you think that this is your armor? hundred percent. Hundred percent. Like, there's definitely fear that I have, and I probably always will have. I'm scared of fucking dying, right? It's like I'm gonna do stuff to. I think that if I stop working, literally, I, I feel this. If I stop working, I'm gonna die. That's how I. I should not. Laugh. I right. <laughs> That's how I feel. So yeah, but yes. What if? We go into World War III. What happens? Like, am I protected? Do I have enough set up for my kids? Can I protect my kids? Can I protect my wife? Can I protect my mom? Can I protect my brother? That's all goes through my head pretty much every single day. With your kids, do you think you pass that feeling along? I can take it a layer up because we were just talking and you said, hey, like with Frank, He's like, you can show me some level of anxiety, but don't show everybody else when you're like, like you need to be strong. How does that work with kids? Well, I'm super open with my kids. I tell them that I have anxiety. I tell them the things that I'm scared of. We're all humans. We all go through these things. And I'm, so I have very open conversations. My, my wife she grew up with two parents that are amazing humans. Like I am in awe of them. They, one was a principal for 30 years. One was a, a math teacher for 30 years in Catholic schools. And I'm in awe of them and so proud of them. But they both were, when they met, they were a priest and a nun, basically. So the Catholic upbringing, you don't talk about things. But because I came from a, a, an upbringing of disaster, you kind of had to. 
because you know, there's all, all this screwiness going on. So like for with my kids, if they get worried about something, I'm like, yeah, I have that worry. Yeah. And I only have that conversation. In fact, I just had that conversation the other night with my, my youngest daughter and Haley. And we talked, you know, about that of like, Hey, yeah, these are things that I worry about. And do you, you know what? It makes her feel normal when she worries about those things. And so it's like, it's super cool to talk to her about that. And it makes me closer to her. So I'm extremely open about that. I uh, did. I'm very open with you about a lot of my, you are. yeah. And so it's like, dude, it's, that's why you're my fucking guy yeah. because it's just rare to see this. If you could take it all back, do you wish you didn't have this in you? Because on the one hand, I know that you acknowledge like I do, that this is what made you into a hard charging, high achieving person that I think you're really proud of. But on the other hand, it's fucking exhausting living with not being enough all the time. You know, here's the thing, because my poor mom, I think the world of her, she's the best mom. She's done an amazing job. She's a wonderful human being. I'm so proud that she's my mom. If I go and ask her, what's her biggest regret? Her biggest regret, 100%, is going to say that she married my father. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. So do I wish that I didn't go through those things? Yeah, 100%. But at the same time, it's like those things have built character, have made me, got me to where I'm at. And, you know, I'm super proud of the person I am. I'm super proud of the family I have. And I love my wife. I love my kids. And I love my brother. I love my mom. And I'm like, dude, that's what matters to me. And so, sure, I would have loved not to do that. But guess what? If I had not gone through that stuff, I probably wouldn't have gone to University of Delaware. I wouldn't have met three or four of my best friends in the planet. I wouldn't have come to California, met my wife, had my kids. So it's like, sure, yeah. I mean, I think about it, yeah. But it's like, as far as I know, you can't change history. You can't go back. But don't you also know, and I'm talking to you as if I'm talking to myself, like, don't you also know that all the things that you're currently anxious about, you're going to look back and be like, well, if this went the way that I wanted it to, then perfect. It went the way that I wanted it to. If it didn't and it went a different direction, you're going to look back and be like, well, if that never happened, then fuck, like, like you're going to be proud no matter what happens. Yeah. But kind of completely different is like, I don't know, somewhere in my late teenage years, I developed a fear of flying and I hated flying. And then I was working at EMC and I didn't have to fly. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to fly. And by the way, my mom is 3000 miles away on the East coast. I have to go get on a plane to go see her. But I would just hate, like when there was turbulence, I was like outer body experience. It was like the worst. And I'm like, this is awful. And so then as I left EMC and I took this job at Avexa to run the West for them, my boss was like, he had me flying everywhere. And I'm like, I'm not going to let my anxiety of fear of flying control me. So I got on a plane, plane after plane after plane after plane after plane. And now there are years I've flown 250,000 miles now at, at Snowflake in, in a given year, just on United, let alone like air in Australia or whatever it is. Yeah. And so it's like, and now I don't give a shit about flying. I'm like completely comfortable flying. And so it's like, you get, you just, you put yourself in uncomfortable situations and you get through them and you either don't or you do. But for me, I like that. I, I, I'm, I have this weird, bizarre, edgy personality where I like a little edge. I like to be pushed a little bit. I like friends that are a little bit edgy. I don't like to punch the clock from going at punch the clock at nine and get out at five. Like that's not my life. I, if I was a, I couldn't be a union worker. That's yeah. not me. You were like, uh, just before this, like selling me on your life plan after Snowflake. Yeah. Your life plan, and we can remove this if you want, is Snowflake until you literally can't go anymore. And yes. then, and then you basically work with entrepreneurs yes. and help them. Yes. First of all, I could see you riding this thing out for way longer than you expect. 
And when it's done, are you sure you're just going to like sit on the sidelines? Are you positive that you're not going to see an entrepreneur doing something and be like, oh my God, I have to get back in. Like, are you sure no. you're done? No. Like, I know no. you feel. No. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a good question. I, look. Like, I feel like you want it. Like, yeah. you tell me the story with conviction because you want to tell yourself the story. But even when I sit here, we have to wait to do this because you're still on the phone. The last time I saw you, you were not in good spirits. You were. I was going to Europe once a month. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I was, like, I was in tough. You were going through it. Yeah, I was going through it. I'm like, dude, you're 10 years in. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> You've been here since like employee 10. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. No, dude. Will I ever go like, okay. Do, will you go back to like pre-product market fit? I'm not sure. For, for the record, I love my job. And why do I love my job? Because ultimately the snowflake 3.0 or whatever version of snowflake we're on. I love it because ultimately I have competitors. You've interviewed some of the CEOs and to be very specific, it gets me out of bed. I actually love when people come at me, it gets me excited. And I'm like, when we started Snowflake, we would go to Amazon reInvent every year. For the first five, six years of us going to reInvent, every single time, we'd hear a month before reInvent, every single time, the guy who was the Super good dude from Amazon will come to us and say, Amazon Redshift, they have, they have the snowflake killer. They're going to come and kill you. And I'll be like, okay, bring it. And every year, guess what they didn't do? They didn't kill us. I think Amazon has done a good job. I think Microsoft's done a good job. I love that. That gets me yeah. going every single day. I'm a competitive person. You introduced me to your old boss, Bob. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Amazing human. Incredible. Yeah. Went over to his house in Seattle. Couldn't have been a nicer, nicer the best. human. He's the best. He's the best. Like as advertised. Yes. I sent you the picture of him. In I know. The I was so, so excited. How unbelievable. I was so like, excited. That's, how, like, yeah. that's Bob. When Frank came on, did he almost give you permission to be this guy? Like in some ways, did you find a kinship with Frank of like, yeah, it's f***ing us against the world. That's how he is. And you're like that, but the world isn't like that. Like most of the people that you hire, it's more fuzzy feel good. We're not normal. And Frank's not normal. Did you feel like, it's the kinship I feel with you where I'm like, yeah, God damn it. We look at the world a little bit odd. Did he give you a little permission there? Well, so Bob, he came and Bob like would watch me at the end of the quarter and be like, what's wrong with this dude? <laughs> I, I would be losing my shit. I would be like, at the end of the quarter, he'd be like, dude. And I think Bob had had such an amazing, I mean, you you talked about his career. His career prior to Snowflake was amazing. Legendary. Legendary, right? Like, I was like listening to that podcast and I'm like, you could do just a podcast on Bob at Microsoft, let alone Bob at Snowflake. And I was just like so blown away. Listen, I mean, I love that. I love his story. But Bob was like, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you pacing the halls? And given my upbringing and given my, my paranoia, I'm suspect of everybody. Like literally everybody. My daughters one time came to visit us at Snowflake. And Bob and I were yelling at each other in the hallway. And my daughters were like, what is going on, dad? But then Bob and I were like brothers. We'd hug afterward. And there were humans that worked at Snowflake under Bob that I didn't see eye to eye. And I would tell Bob that. I would say, hey, Bob, I don't see eye to eye with this person. And he would say, well, have you told them that? I'm like, well, no, but I will. And so I would go and do that. I would go and tell the person, this is what I think of you. That was like a thing that I realized all of a sudden the snowflake was a big deal because when I would say something to these people that I didn't trust them, I didn't believe in them, they would treat me differently and they would then agree with me on everything I said. 
Can you give me an example? You don't have to say the person. There were multiple people that I, that I would just say that I, A, I didn't think we should hire. I'll, I'll, give you, Bob. I'll give you a perfect example. There was a person that I was interviewing. And I'm like, I ask a basic question. Where do you live? I live in this area. And I think in this area, like this person lives in Hillsboro, so they don't want to say Hillsboro because we're, you know, some startup and whatever. I'm like, oh, okay. Great. This person, who was a direct report to Bob, lived in Tahoe. And I'm like, at the time, this was pre-COVID, everyone had to be in the office. And then I'm like, okay, well, that's not cool. This person lied to me about where they lived. And my instincts were correct. And I said, we shouldn't hire this person. Bob still hired this person. And then I would say to Bob, I, I don't trust them. And he would say, go tell them. And I would go and tell them. And then they would just say, I want to work with you. But then when we would get into deals, this person would get involved. And they were not a master at their craft. They were a master at managing up. And candidly, that was one of the biggest fears I had when we hired Bob was that he didn't have the ability to roll up his sleeves because he had managed 10,000, whatever the number of people yeah, he managed. He's a big company guy. That was total misjudgment by me. Bob knows how to roll up his sleeves and do the job. And so for me, that's the thing I love about Bob. And that is the thing that I disliked about a lot of the big company people that we started to hire as we started to grow the company. And there, it was abundantly clear that there was, and there was a number of the, that type of behavior. I'll give you a very specific example, which will drive Bob crazy if he, if he listens to this, is he said to me, there was another person, different person, and he said, Chris, if someone was going to shoot me, you'd push me out of the way, which is factually accurate, right? I try to save Bob. I love Bob. And he said, this other person would jump in front and take the bullet. Okay. Frank comes in. Bob gets let go. We all have one-on-ones. This person comes in. The first thing this human says is to Frank, thank God you're here. And I'm like... And I know this for a fact because... This is the person that was going to jump in front of Bob. Right. In, in front of a bullet for yeah, Bob. Yeah. And the thing that I said to Frank, and I said, Frank, there's two things I have for you. Just two things. And I said, and this is my first one-on-one. I, I, I've never met Frank in my life. I've seen him from like Yeah, like on, on the stage. cover of Forbes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I said to Frank, I say, Frank, there's two things I have for you. We have a, this big deal at a, at a customer and I need your help because Bob had just talked to the CEO two days ago. So you're going to have to talk to the CEO. And I said, we have the best marketing department in the world. You shouldn't mess with that. And he said, wow, you're the first person that came in here that spoke positively of their other peers. You have everyone else throwing everyone under the bus. I'm like, huh, well, that's all I got for you. And I left. There were certainly plenty of problems, but I was focused on my job and doing my job. And I know you're not one to like toot your own horn, but aren't you and the CMO, Denise, the only executives that like basically made it through yeah. mm -hmm. the transition. Yeah. I mean, Christian Kleinerman was, I think the world of Christian, he was our head of product. Bob was our head of product. So in a lot of ways, right. Bob leaving actually elevated Christian and Christian's done a wonderful job. Like I, I respect the hell out of that guy. So, but like when you hear Frank talk for me, at least it's a breath of fresh air. Cause I'm like, He's focused on the right things. Like yes. He's not pandering to anybody. He's saying what people that are building businesses think but are too scared to say. And he's just willing to say them. I, I totally agree. Like he's not even saying anything revolutionary. He's saying what we all think but are too scared to say. And by the way, that is what I love about Frank is, you know, what he said to us is when he came in, he goes, your values are good, but you can't just point at the wall and talk about the values. You actually have to live the values. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to have tough conversations with people. And it's gut-wrenching to have to fire someone. And like, 
I lose sleep. I, I have anxiety over it. And he said this to me and, and it's resonated with me is he goes, look, do you think the board of directors, do you think they're my friend? And he's like, he answered it for him. He goes, they're not. <laughs> They'd fire me in a heartbeat. I'm here to make money for shareholders. And that's what we're doing. And by the way, I respect the hell out of that. And I know that if Frank senses, he's got this insane sense of his BS meter is better than yours. It's I have a 30 minute one-on-one with Frank. I get more accomplished in 15 minutes with Frank than I do in an hour with anybody else. Like the conversations I have with him are just insane. Do you get the insecurity of, Oh, our culture has changed because you were part of the like beginning of the culture of like, oh no, this isn't the same as it used to be. Like, do you feel the tension of like, well, of course it's not the same, but also a responsibility to preserve the essence of what was? There are so many people that are just joining Snowflake now and I want them to feel super welcome. Like I'm super paranoid. Like I have this like weird thing socially. If I'm like out talking to people and whatever, like if you or I were out socially, I'm better one-on-one, you and me. I'd be worried about you making sure that you were having a good time. If I invite you over to my house, I'd be like, Jubin, here's my wife, here's my friend Dave, here's my friend Mark. I'd be more worried about you making sure you're having a good time than like having a, me having a good time. Yeah. I'm constantly, you know, worried that the people that we have that have just joined, they don't feel left out. And I don't want you to feel left out. Just like I don't want, like in a social situation, just like I don't want my, the people that we we work with that have just started that don't have the history mm-hmm. with me to feel left out. And, and that's hard because like I walk around Snowflake now and, and we're a big company and people are like, hey, Chris, and I don't know everybody's name. And it's weird, right? It's a, a bizarre you know, situation for me, but I, I don't know. I think I just, I care about Snowflake. I care about the humans that show up now and keeping care of the culture that we built. It evolves. People change. And you built Snowflake in the beginning because it was, there was passion behind what we're doing. I still have passion about what I do, but it's different. Right. And it's more like we're building a big company now and it's a different type of mentality than it is like, it's your little baby, mm-hmm. you know. Do you worry now that it's the big company and you're like the CRO of a big, whatever, what's the like $60 billion, $50 billion, $2 billion revenue? Like it's a giant company. You have serious expectations now. Do you worry that like no one's f-ing telling you what's actually going on anymore? Yes. Like, like. Yes. No, <laughs> do, so go, you know, it's, it's funny. Like there's an actual situation this goes back pre-Frank, but so we had this person who was a direct report to Bob and I was in the meeting and she was always super nice to me, like super nice to me. And I'm like, oh, okay, great. She's great. And then we were in this meeting talking about something that we had to do, whatever the thing is that we had to do. And one of the people that wasn't a direct report to me, but I respected said, well, what if we did this? And it was like, Okay, moving on. Just she she ignored it, and then like she says, "Well, blah 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 blah. We're gonna do this, this, and this." And then I'm like, "Well, that was a good idea." So I'm like, "What if we do that?" Which was said by my friend. Well, he's my friend, but but a guy that that worked for me. I'm like, "What if we did what Rick said over here?" And she's like, "Oh, that's a good idea." I'm like, "What? That wasn't my idea. Rick said that idea." And that's when I started. It occurred to me that people don't. They treat me differently than they do other people. And yeah. that's, dude, that's a constant paranoia that I have. Is I that- bet Frank has the same thing. Oh, yeah. Because you're losing truth. A hundred percent. So, like, like good- literally, it distorts the reality of those that are making the final decision. One of the things that I just recently did, just this past, like, month, I do a quarterly business review. And Frank was like, there's too many people that want to be in the meeting that don't have any value because they're probably too scared to say anything. So he's like, review the list and trim it down. And do you know what? 
that was amazing feedback because I had probably 50 people in my QBR, which is by the way, the company QBR. And it's like, I trimmed that down and we then had real conversations and then I had real action items. And I was like, man, this was the best QBR I've had in a long time because people were honest with each other. Yeah. And I have people in there that have the guts to actually be honest with each other. Is there anything else you intentionally do to get the truth? Go on sales calls. I mean, how often are you going on sales calls? As often as possible. I mean, as often as possible. So in full transparency, I just transitioned a new head of EMEA. So I was going to Europe once a month. And I had a perception of what was happening in Europe. And then my perception changed entirely once I went over there. And I started to realize like what matters. And what matters is getting in a car with a sales rep, getting on a train, going to a pub, going to lunch, getting a coffee, talking to the admin in the office in London. You learn so much. And it's like, holy cow, like all of a sudden you start to get the real picture. So we went through this crazy pandemic and everything was done on Zoom. And man, you realize it's not Today, I just did an all hands for my, the, I did a sales all hands today. So my EA wasn't in the room, Amanda, and she's badass. And she's like, hey, dude, there were just dudes in the room. And I'm like, that wasn't true. But that was all that w- you could see in the room. So I'm, I'm like sensitive to that. I'm like, oh, shit, I don't have, you know, women in the room. And they were there. They just weren't present in the camera. And I'm like, so you realize is like, Perception can be very different than reality. And you can only figure that out by going and being in front of people and, and hanging out with the people and, and getting a sense of what's happening. Can I revisit the Denise thing? Like yeah. the comment that you made? Yeah. She's still there. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, if they were you, would think about their team as all the sales org. Do you think about that as your team or do you think about Denise and the executive team as your team? I view... Denise as one of my most important business partners. And what I appreciate about Denise so much. Not just because she's going to get her hands on this audio at some point. Well, she'll edit this probably for sure. But what I appreciate about Denise is just like you and I have this like, you and I had a private conversation. I won't share it, but we had a private conversation before. And you get over anxious about right now. I need to do it right now. I love that about Denise. She's like, let's do it immediately. Not like wait six months, three months. No, we're going to do it right now. And the sense of urgency that she brings to the table, we just made an acquisition of this company called Neva. We hired this guy, Sridhar. Sridhar used to run the Google ads business. Like guy's a badass. I mean, he's just a badass and he's intense. And I'm like, man, thank you for bringing that intensity. Frank made him a part of the executive staff. This guy brings another level of intensity and he's hard. And I love that because I have a sense of urgency and I want to solve things now. And so when people like that come into your life in work, there may be tough situations, abrasive situations, whatever, I'm okay with that. I'm okay. Frank can be abrasive, but I value that because the staff meeting this week that we had, there was conflict. And then I had my one-on-one with Frank immediately after. And he's like, that was a good uh, staff meeting. I'm like, yeah, I agree with him. I'm like, yeah, we got a lot of stuff done. And so, dude, conflict if you don't take offense to it, like there's people that like, oh, they're afraid of conflict or whatever. No, man. If you don't take offense to it and you do something and you act on it and you do it right now, that intensity is like awesome because that's what makes great companies. Do you and Denise get into conflict? When CROs ask you, Chris, which I'm sure they do, this is probably one of the top questions you get. I'm really struggling with marketing. How do you advise them? Well, or do you just thank your fucking lucky stars that you have no, no, an so N of one person? There's two types of 
CMOs. I mean, effectively. There's product marketers and there's demand generation marketers. Denise is a demand generation marketer. And ultimately, what salespeople hate or want from marketing is what I should say, is they want leads. All Denise, all she cares about is making sure that I get enough leads. Not I, the sales team gets enough leads. Now, there's a bunch of other stuff. She has product marketing, she has PR, she has all sorts of stuff that I don't, I'm even not even aware of. But the thing that she does that is very different than most marketers is she says, the sales organization, they are my customer. I'm going to make them extremely happy. She's like a five-star hotel. She's like, we're going to make sure that you have everything you need. So the field marketing team, they're a bunch of badasses. Badasses. Sales loves them. Sales loves them. Like every time you talk to someone who comes in, they're like, holy cow, this marketing team's amazing. (laughs) And I'm like, yes, they are. They're the best in the business. And so I respect the hell out of Denise. And she's been an incredible business partner for almost seven years for me. And the success that we've had, that's the thing is like, Mike Spicer said this to me. This is a quote from Spicer. And he said, never worry about how much equity somebody else gets in the organization. We're giving them equity because we want to make everyone in this company really, really wealthy. And the thing that you realize is like, do your job. And Denise does her job so well. And, and by the way, if she calls me and says, fire this person, which she's done, I will fire that person. Spot on. Because, no questions asked. No questions asked. Now, I'll do my due diligence, which I've done. But right back at her is like, if I tell her like, we've got conflict, she's like, wait, what? Who's doing what to sales? Okay, that's done. And it's not like, okay, wait three weeks. It's like, no, we're doing that tomorrow. So I think that's the important part. And I think that that's not just between sales and marketing. It's that's between Christian Kleinerman, who's our head of product. That's between Mike Scarpelli, who's our CFO. Like we have a culture of what Frank has brought is go direct. Like if there are things that are happening in the company, don't go tell dad, Frank, go deal with it. And so if people come to me, have you gone to them? Like, I'm happy to do it, but you're more informed than I. I don't know the issues that you're dealing with. That actually has done, has been super helpful. I used to, prior to Frank, people used to manage up to me. I'd run around and go boom, 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 and, and try to fix things. Frank's like, make the people that work for you. If you're doing their job for them, then why are they here? It's a super valid point. So I've learned a lot from him in that of scaling. It's like, if I'm the key part of it, what if I get hit by a bus tomorrow? I want Snowflake, I love Snowflake so much, I want it to continue to be successful. And so everything I do is is very much built on making sure there's a succession plan, there's a the right organizational structure that we will survive. And by the way, that is how my organization set up. I am super proud of the human beings that work for me and they can run the company. There is a wonderful succession plan in place today. Do you have a professional coach and a therapist? Or do you, what do you like? No. How how do you set up your support system besides your incredible wife? Yeah. So I I do, I do go to therapy. I mean, not not everyone would, would admit that, but you know, I certainly suffer from anxiety. I do too. And so I talked to my daughters openly about it. And, and By the way, can I just interrupt you for a second? Yeah. The reason I wanted to do my first ever part two with you is because we f-ing can talk about this stuff. Yeah. Because it's like the truth. Yeah. It's and real it's life. Like, it's it's real like, life. turns out like, yeah, probably more of my friends should do this. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. It's real life. It's real life. The answer to your question is I go to therapy because I have anxiety. And on the professional side, there are human beings that I talk to that have been incredibly impactful in my professional career. And it's like, I don't know how I got so lucky. I had Mike Spicer who hired me. I had Bob Muglia who was my boss. And I consider Bob a friend. I worked out with Bob three days a week probably at Equinox. 
in San Mateo. And man, what a, I learned so much from that guy. And then it's like, I worked with Chad Peets, who was the the guy that helped me build the sales organization from a recruiting standpoint, who Mike Spicer hired to be a partner at Sutter Hill. And it's like, man, I still, to this day, talk to Chad on a regular basis. And and I talk to him about some of the things that I go through. And he's a, a great person for me to, he understands the situation to go through. To Denise Pearson, who's our CMO, who we talked about earlier, who I consider a friend. I think the world's Denise, and man, I respect the hell out of her. And I learned so much from her. And so to John McMahon, to Frank Slootman, to Mike Scarpelli, like the thing that, that I would say is like, shit, I'm super lucky that I've got to work with these people. And now like the people that they continue to bring on the board of the company, like Frank just brought on Mark McLaughlin, who was the ex-CEO of Palo Alto Networks. Jay Shree, who who's the founder of Arista, I'm like amazed that I'm, they even know my name, right? And these are badass people. And by the way, they put the screws on me and I'm okay with that. I, that's makes me better. And I like that. So look, I don't have a professional coach. Maybe I should, I don't know. No one's told me to do it, do it. Maybe someday I will. There's been people that Bob has had that I've been introduced to that have been helpful. And there's been a ton of people that have influence me throughout my journey. But I think that the way I approach it is I'm going to learn from the people that work for me, from Mark Fleming to John Sapone to Eve Passant to many, many others that I'm going to learn something from. If you're too arrogant to not take advice from people, then you'll fail. My favorite ever story about you, ever, when I was like, fuck, this guy has got it going. You were like, hey, Snowflake's gone pretty well. And he's like, we're going to buy a place in Tahoe. Anything you recommend? And I was like, I like Martis Camp. Have you checked out Martis? Do you remember the story? Yeah. And you were like, yeah, Jubin, I fucking checked out Martis. I went to the lodge and... I said, this is beautiful. Can I bring my friends? Your friends are Boston ostensibly. And they were like, uh, you know, if it's not too busy and you go to the beach and they're like, what do you think? And you're like, this is unbelievable. I can't wait to bring my friends. And they're like, oh no, it's a members only beach. And he said, look lady, I don't know what's going on here, but the whole point of me buying a house is to bring my friends. I don't really want to make new friends. So anyway, I appreciate you, and I appreciate you doing this for the first ever round two, 155 episodes later. I love you. Thank you. Thank you, Jubin. And and by the way, like, if you don't decide to do a job in tech, I do think you're the next Howard Stern. (laughs) I do love Howard, and you should probably think about that as a career. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.